Hello everyone and welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. Here we'll discuss everything related to the wide world of automobiles, including culture, news, games, interviews, and events. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to this week's Sunday special. This week... We're going to be delving into, this is sort of like a throwback Thursday, uh, There was someone made a Friday version, I can't remember what it was, but we're going to be delving into a story from Car and Driver back in May 18th of 2012, talking about the Gen 5 Viper when it came out. I saw this, was in my bookmarks, and I was like, you know what, that would be an interesting read, especially for people who may not know more about the Viper or want to know more about the Gen 5 or maybe forgot a few things. I thought this would be a very interesting article to read, so here's the headline. 2013 SRT Viper GTS, in-depth with the men who made it happen. Fang time. Following a two-year absence, the Viper returns with a 640-horsepower set of lungs. We visit the plant and talk to the men who made it happen. Let's get into this article. Russ Rudisweli, 53, is sitting in his office at Chrysler's Technology Center in Auburn Hills, Michigan. Although he's the kind of guy who doesn't sit so much as crouch, muscles tense and twitching, as if he were attached to a pair of unseen jumper cables beneath his desk. You'd figure the guy was in pain, except for his perpetual smile. I remember when the original Viper got rolling, in 1989, and Bob Lutz, Chrysler president at that time, called a bunch of car guy employees into the styling dome. Ruta Swaley remisses. He rolled the car in, started it up, and said to us, so who's interested in being on this program? I was so geeked I about fainted. But at the time, I was working on a different Chrysler program, and they wouldn't let me go. It felt like a huge lost opportunity. To be in this position today, 20-some years later, having the second chance, well? Rudis Whaley's voice trails off and is replaced by a smile so big that his ears move. He involuntarily hoists his butt another few inches off his chair, and now his head hovers just below a shattered yellow nose cone from his Formula Ford, currently serving as office sculpture. That's a casualty of a turn 8 brake check at Road America, he explains. Rudis Whaley is Chrysler's head of engineering for SRT and motorsports, and he's the vehicle line executive for the 5th gen Dodge Viper. Except it's not a Dodge anymore, it's an SRT, because the Dodge name wasn't deemed spiffy enough to be slapped on the rump of anything fetching just north of $100,000. That's for the base SRT Viper, and $120,000 for the more upscale SRT Viper GTS. The last of the previous-gen Vipers rolled out of Detroit's rough-and-tumble Connor Avenue plant in the summer of 2010. As Chrysler madly stuffed corks in all its financial leaks, the Viper brand was slated to be sold off to the highest bidder. To any bidder. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed and the brand not only survived, but was also resuscitated. But it took a lot of heart massaging. I knew the very last thing Chrysler needed during our bankruptcy was a 600-horsepower sports car, says Ralph Gilles, the 42-year-old president and CEO of SRT and senior VP of Chrysler Product Design. But I'm an optimist. I wanted to fight for a chance. We discussed it for a year. I got Sergio Marchione, Chrysler CEO, to drive one of the last Vipers. He jumped in and disappeared to God knows where. He came back 15 minutes later and said, Ralph, that's a lot of work. He meant it was a brutal car, but he didn't say good riddance or anything. Then, in late 2009, I showed him a video of a Viper breaking the Nürburgring record. He watched all of it and was impressed. I gave him a list of the supercars the Viper had put away. It's against the rules here, but we started sketching on the project. We never asked for permission, we just did it. 
Then in mid-2010, I had a full-size model put together. We took it to the styling dome and had the place dimly lit like a nightclub, and I got the Chrysler management team sitting almost campfire style. So we unveiled the car with its 32-coat candy apple paint, and you could have heard a pin drop. When people started talking, Sergio said, Be quiet! Let's just take this in. Eventually, we got tired of Chrysler executives telling us what the car should be, Jills remembers. So we staged a research clinic with supercar owners. Out Air 8 owners, Nissan GTR owners, Porsche and Ferrari folks. They said, the Viper doesn't handle, it's only a straight line wonder, it's hot inside, it's badly made, it doesn't have cruise control. <laughs> it hurt my feelings, but we vowed that the new car would retain its signature rawness and purity, yet we'd bring it into the 21st century. So now we have the first of multiple questions. Was an Alfa Romeo 8C platform considered? Ralph Jules answered this. Yes, but when we got the drawings from Alpha, it was much taller, a bit narrower, and the cab was too far forward. And our engine would never fit. It would have stuck out of the hood. Who did the final styling? Jills also answered this, and then Mark Trossel jumped in later. It came down to six designers I'd call the finalists. We had six clay models in a room we, in a room we called it Area 51, a kind of secret place that was off-limits. In the end, we melded the designs, well, the themes, of three of the finalists. We wanted this car to look good for 20 years, like the original. You see any of Halle Berry's shape in it? <laughs> Mark Trossel, head of design for SRT, Mopar, and Motorsports. It's the proportions that make it iconic. That long, exaggerated nose, then the cab tucked so far rearward. We didn't need to reinvent it. The reason there was a secret room with two keys is because the program wasn't approved. You don't do full-size models unless you have the money. So when Sergio first saw the car, he said, You son of a, you went and did this car anyway. But he didn't look like he was going to fire me. Then Trossel pitched in afterwards. We really got the body down on the wheels, closed up the wells 10 millimeters. There are a lot of what we call Easter eggs on the car. Little surprises the owner will discover later, like a subtle snakeskin motif on the rear turn signals and the V in the grill. When you see the headlights lit, it's an evil look. A snake's eye. I owned a 96 coupe, and I loved to wash it by hand so I could feel all those muscular shapes. We wanted the new car to deliver that same heroic experience. Next question. The architecture remains familiar? Ruta Swaley answered this one. Yes, the wheelbase is unchanged, although the front track is wider, and the car still rides on a steel frame with a lot of work to reduce weight and increase stiffness. A huge number of our customers run these cars on track days, and they bang them up. We stuck with the steel frame because it's repairable. The cockpit is all new, the rear suspension geometry is new, wheels, tires, and shocks are also new. The only carryover piece is the windshield. Every body panel is fresh, too. Rooster Daily answered this one as well. Every piece. One goal was to take out some weight. We already have 100 to 140 pounds out. We have aluminum doors and sills now, and the hood, roof, and rear deck are carbon fiber. We came back to the clamshell hood. We had so much response from customers who wanted to open that thing and clean stuff and show off the engine. Our intent was to improve the fit and finish, too. The old car had so much sheet molding compound, but it shrinks and grows, making it difficult to get tight gaps and fits. With aluminum and carbon fiber, we've really tightened it up. Tell me about the new paint process. Rusadelli answered this one as well. The old car's panels arrived at the factory painted, kind of mixed and matched. And if you wanted the car striped, it went to another place and they put the stripes on top of the paint. Now, they'll do the stripes directly on the panels, and they'll, be, and they'll be under the clear coat. We really raised the bar on gloss level. It's literally a hand paint job, hand buffed and sanded, 
a custom job. I don't think anyone else can make that claim, maybe Aston Martin. The interior is all new? Klaus Busse, head of interior design for the Chrysler Group. Absolutely everything. This is finally a luxury car inside. Every Viper now has a full leather wrap on all major surfaces, including the dash. It's one of the finest leathers money can buy. Leather that Bentley would gladly take. Wait until you smell it. We stayed away from any metal trim because of the weight. The seats are made by Sawbell in Italy. Genuine, thin-shell seats rather than frame seats. They have, they have fantastic lateral support and will accept a six-point racing harness available through Mopar. We also have a data logging system so you can record your acceleration runs, top speed, and G-forces. And as the tack approaches Redline, a Red Viper illuminates behind it. Jill has also jumped in on the answer. When I first showed the car to Sergio, it had seats from a different supplier. When he sat in it, he said, What the mess are these Barca loungers doing in here? So we went to Sawbelt. They do Ferrari seats. They're expensive, but worth it. Plus, we get 1.6 inches of height adjustment, Brutuselli then said. We have a lot of customers who are big, so we also got the seat down and back about an inch. That's important if you're wearing a helmet. Then we took, then we took the center console down an inch. I used to feel like I was sitting with one arm on a high console and my other arm on a tall armrest. Now they're level. We worked on the shifter. The throws are shorter, lower effort, and we rounded off the detents. Cockpit volumes are also a little larger because we moved the bulkhead a bit. Storage is better than ever. The cockpit feels more open. We reduced the heat in the front boxes too. That fireball is magnesium? Rudicelli answered this one. A magnesium casting. It's the biggest automotive piece of magnesium that we know of. It's light and stiff. On a frame car, the firewall is key. The pedals and the steering wheel mount to it, so it has to be super stiff. There's also a big aluminum X-brace under the hood, which helped get torsional stiffness up by 50%. You can feel it on turn-in. There are two models initially? Once again, Rudicelli answered. Yes, the base car and the GTS. The GTS has different wheels and two suspension settings, street and race. It has a Harman Kardon stereo, an ultra suede headliner, red brake calipers, different color, different color brake ducts, optional and optional interior colors. This is the first time for electronic stability control on Vipers. There are four positions and you can turn it all the way off. We took a stand on that and the lawyers thankfully left us alone. Editorial note, the off position is available on all SRT products. Jules then said, the stability control on this car will make gods out of drivers. In fact, it's so subtle and effective that I don't want to flash a warning light. Drivers don't need to know how often it's working. To turn it off completely, you hold the button for 5 seconds below 25 miles per hour. We can't even say that in the owner's manual. We'll leave it up to you guys to spread the word. So you've replaced the Michelins with Pirellis? Once again, Rudicelli answered. Yes, Pisa or Corses. Very strong at the track. 18 inches in front by 295-30 and 19 inches at the rear by 355-30. Pirelli has really opened the envelope. In Arizona, we drove into the hills and hit snow. In Ari Really? In Arizona? I I'm used to Arizona being really, really dry, so I can't imagine there being snow in Arizona. I digress. The old tires would get hard when they were cold. With the Pirellis, I couldn't believe the traction still available. Describe the suspension. Once again, another question Rudicelli answered. All independent with aluminum control arms. The front geometry is pretty much the same apart from some steering tuning. A half inch wider front track. We've got new Bilstein shocks, spring rates are up quite a bit, and at the back there are geometry changes. We altered the tow link because we had so much grip that we were getting some compliance steer. That improved the way the car points, improved its behavior under acceleration and braking. 
The brakes are the same size, but optional equipment is a cast iron rotor with, a, with an aluminum hub. Matched to lightweight wheels, it takes out about 50 pounds. You driven the car on tracks? Ruta Swaley said. All over the place, but mostly in the U.S. At Texas Motorsport Ranch, which has good elevation changes at Gingerman and Willow Springs. All SRT products do a 24-hour run at Nelson Ledges. And at Nissan's course in Arizona, the Nissan track offers two lanes. On one side, there are chatter bumps and potholes. On the other side, it's smooth. You can really hammer this car. I've been racing Formula cars for a long time, and I was amazed how much traction it offers. Was there a car, perhaps a Corvette, that was a performance target? Rudis Whaley said. Well, sure, but remember that the Viper will never be a Corvette. We don't ever want it to be. Our customers are very anxious about this becoming a Corvette. The Viper is more raucous. Of course, we looked at the ZR1 because it's so capable. We also looked at some Porsche 911s and the Lexus LFA to make sure we were in the performance ballpark. What's in the new engine? Dick Winkles, chief engineer for the Viper powertrain, said, We have an airbox that feeds directly off that big main hood scoop. Then it leads to our new composite intake manifold, replacing the aluminum version. The approach angle to the ports is improved, and the runners are longer for high-speed tuning. The plenums have better distribution front to back. It's very smooth on those inner walls compared with the class, no, cast aluminum. We got about 20 more pound-feet of torque and 10 horsepower from the new manifold, and it's also 7 pounds lighter, weight that was previously up high because it's an intake manifold. It doesn't transfer heat like the aluminum ones did. It keeps the charge cooler in stop-and-go driving. No, it keeps the charge cooler, not that charge cooler is a thing. The final figures are 640 horsepower at 6,150 RPM with fuel shutoff at 6,400 RPM and 600 pound-feet pound of torque at 4,950 RPM. Editorial note, an increase of 40 horses and 40 pound-feet of torque. You have the same camming cam arrangement with variable valve timing, Winkle said. The same, although we altered the intake profile. It gave us 10 horsepower at the higher end. Maul makes that cam. I don't know of any issues in the field with it in the past three years of production. I don't know anyone else using a cam like that. Did you consider cylinder deactivation? Winkles also said, not really. On a V8 with even firing, you can kind of skip a cylinder, but this is more like two five-cylinder engines paired. So what you end up doing is cutting one whole bank. That cools the cats, and when they relight, it's dirty. You took weight out of the engine? Winkles said. We got 25 pounds out in total. The intake was big, but we're also now using an aluminum flywheel. It's quick in shift times and is 11 pounds lighter. Then we went to sodium-filled exhaust valves rather than stainless. Those valves are hollow, a tenth of a pound lighter apiece. That's one pound right there. You're back to forced pistons? Winkle said. The cast pistons weren't quite robust enough if an owner added a supercharger or a turbo or if he was pumping nitrous. Those pistons weren't indestructible. So we heard the owner's cries and we're back to forced malls. Now we can protect the tuners from their own mistakes. We also got a lower tension ring pack with lower friction. Ruta Swaley then pitched in. With the new flywheel, the motor spins up faster. It's worth a tenth of a second at the drag strip, and the engine is offset towards the passenger to help weight distribution when only the driver is on board, like on track. Overall, it's 49% front, 51% rear with the driver in the car. The base car should come in at 3,320 pounds. We're looking at an optional track pack that will take out another 40 pounds. You overcame a cooling problem? Winkle said. We previously had a temperature gradient we didn't like. We had to retard the rear cylinders because they were running hot. We came up with revisions to the block and the head, gas head gaskets that reduced temps by as much as 25 degrees Celsius. 
That's a lot. And let us run more aggressive spark and fuel. Why no direct injection? Winkles answered this one. Well, this is still a wedge-style combustion chamber, and getting direct injection into a wedge is hard. You'd have to come in on the side of the head, the exhaust side, where there's all that heat. The engine is assembled at the Connor Avenue plant? Winkle said. Yes, but the cylinder heads arrive already assembled. Still, it takes maybe nine hours at 26 stations to build a complete engine. What's new is that we're now sending every engine out to be dyno for 40 minutes of run-in, a true dyno check, before it's dropped into a car. We ship the engines to aero, aero racing engines in Auburn Hills. If it doesn't look right on the dyno, we can have our guys over there in 10 minutes to figure it out. Did you consider overhead cams? Winkle said, goodness no, 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 no. This is a highly developed wedge, and we're getting about 76 horsepower per liter. Going to overhead cams makes it wider, and this car is already narrow between the frame rails. We looked at putting Hemi heads on the car, but you can't do it because of the width. The transmission is a carryover? Ruta Swaley answered. It's again a Tremec 6-speed manual. There's no automatic, partly because an automatic isn't part of the Viper signature, but there are also some technology problems with a dual-clutch transmission, harsh shifts, and just obtaining a box that can handle 600 pound-feet of torque. But we also tightened up the ratio so it makes you feel more a part of the experience. On entrance, on entrance ramps, you can shift through a few gears. It's more fun. The final drive is now 3.55 to 1, rather than 3.07. Well, 3.07, Winkle said. In the old car, 6 was nothing but a fuel economy gear, and the car didn't feel good in 6th. In this car, top speed arrives in 6th rather than 5th. Now you have a real 6-speed transmission. Jills also said, There will be a time in the future when I'd like to have an automatic, but the cost of developing it right now would have equaled the cost of the whole program. So any performance data? Ruta Swaley said. It's obviously quicker than the old car. Early tests show 0-60 to 60 in the mid-3-second range and the quarter mile in the mid-11s at the high 120s. We also have launch control, a button on the steering wheel. You enable it and hold a certain number of revs, then you release the, release the clutch and it automatically modulates the throttle to keep the tires just barely spinning. The exhaust still exits in front of the rear wheel wells, Ruta Swaley said. Just a resounding, yup. The V10's... The V10 still has that unique sound, but I didn't like the idle before, and at cruise it would drone, so we did a bunch of NVH work, that's basically noise work. There's a lot of new sealing, we got some of the tunnel noise out, and we got hydro mounts on the engine to quell some vibration. We also changed bushings and got some new NVH pads. There's no crossover in the exhaust system, it's a much nicer place to be. Was the car in the wind tunnel? Ruta Swaley said. Lots of times. The idea was to get the drag down. We're at 0.364 CD right now. We did a lot of work on the underbody to get the car over 200 miles per hour. In fact, the data suggests 206. We'll do max speed runs when we get our pilot cars. That's part of our validation process. Will the car be sold worldwide? Ruta Swaley answered. We'll launch in North America first, then Euroversions, but no right-hand drive. There's some discussion about China and Japan. China is emerging with lots of money, as they would so many years down the line. They're interested in cars like this. Will a roadster follow? Ruta Swaley said something that we've all heard before. I can't talk about future products. I will say this. We constantly have to do things to keep this car fresh. The customer expects to see new stuff constantly. I want to touch back on the, on the drag coefficient for a second here. He was saying that they're at 0.364, and that's for the, you know, the SRT, the GTS. If I remember correctly, the TA that would come out later is at 0.433, and that's because of the additional downforce. And then the TA 2.0 is apparently at a very similar number, and then the ACR, the non-extreme, the normal one, is at 
0.514, I believe? No, the normal ACR is at 0.533, and then the ACR Extreme is actually at 0.514, even though it has more, more aerodynamic stuff on it. So that might be because of the diffuser, though, and maybe because of the louvers in the hood. But yeah, so 0 0.364. Remember the Tesla Roadster? That was apparently at a 2 point something, so under 3. But the thing is, is that that car isn't doing 206. It only barely does 150. Although I personally believe it only gets to about 130. So if you're wondering why cars like the Viper, Z06s, or TAs, or Z06, or yeah, C6s, Z06s, that sort of thing. Well, not, not normal Corvette C6s, because those are probably... Those probably have a lower drag coefficient because they just they don't go 200 miles per hour. The whole point of adding, the whole point of having a drag coefficient number like that is to make the car slippery enough to hit a high top speed number, but also to give it some downforce so it's stable, or at the very least, certainly more stable than it would be otherwise. Moving on, will there be a factory race team? Ruta Swaley said, "We're getting we're getting our arms around that right now. The ALMS and Grand Am are the obvious places. Sorry, and Grand Am are obvious places." It's important that we build on the Viper's racing heritage. Our customers expect that, too. What was the biggest challenge with the Viper? Or with this Viper? Winkle said, After the last Viper ceased, a lot of suppliers didn't want to be in a low-volume business anymore. So when we returned, we had to resource the block casting, the front cover, the oil pan, the valve covers, the intake manifold, the bearings, some gaskets, on and on. Then we had to re revalidate all those parts. Jills then said, it used to be that the Viper was something that suppliers jumped, that suppliers jumped on, a morale booster and image builder. But now, after the downturn, the Viper's volumes are so low that it's a sideshow. When will the car be in showrooms? Rudis Whaley said, this year, but late. But late, late fourth quarter. Buyers should go to the Connor Avenue plant. They'll get to watch their own car being built, Jules then said. I'll tell you, this bugger is fast and proudly built in Detroit. See right here, I think that's a Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> well, yeah, because they did the, uh, right around that time, Chrysler did the imported from Detroit. So maybe, I don't know if this article came out, if this article, sorry, came out before that. But if it did, that's a, that's a funny little precursor right there. I just love how, because I never really noticed until I read this article about, I want to say a year ago, but it might have been earlier this month. I never really realized that they shifted the engine more to the passenger side to help the weight distribution. I mean, no one... No one really talks about that. A lot of people will talk about all the geeky stuff that Porsche does in the pursuit of the ultimate driving experience, but no one will talk about the guys at SRT shifting the engine slightly towards the passenger side, just so the car would have a better weight distribution laterally when the driver got in it. That is some nerdy mess. That is some seriously nerdy crap right there. But you, the thing is, if you look at some images... With the, with the Gen 5 where the clamshell hood is up, you can see it. Because the engine isn't perfectly positioned under the X-Brace. So it's not by a small margin either. You can genuinely see it. And I just feel, I find that so cool. But anyway, I hope all of you enjoyed this. Especially my Viper peeps. I had to do a Viper, a Viper episode because I haven't done one in a while. I'm looking forward to doing more of these. I got a few more 
articles that I, well, I got a lot of articles that I have saved and a few other interesting ones that I think you guys would like to listen to. If you did enjoy this Sunday special, then please like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Hitting the little notification bell and then all notifications. That way you'll be notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road but don't have or want the Podbean mobile app, well then just boot up wherever you get your podcast before you set off. Type in Cody's Car Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I hope you all enjoyed. I'll see you next time. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full-throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.